Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be going over the Matt Slick Open Theism Bible Study. This is a Bible study that he hosted in preparation for his Will Duffy debate. And we're going to be publishing this podcast on Saturday, the day after the Friday debate. But it's going to be recorded prior. It's being recorded now. I'm going to give it to uh, key individuals so they can listen to it before. Because something tells me, something tells me in my little mind that... The arguments that he's making here, we will see repeated. We'll see them again in the Duffy Slick debate. And it's funny because all his arguments are emotions. They're emotions. Oh, if this was true, then this bad thing that I don't like would also be true. And therefore, since we don't like that being true, then we have to jump back a couple steps of logic and reject what I, it's an appeal to emotions. It's an appeal to emotions. It's called the moralistic fallacy when you're rejecting something based on whether you like it or not. And that's all, all he does. All he does. He's is a very emotional man. And we see that from previous podcasts we've done about Matt Slick, how he operates and how he argues. And he often confuses facts with emotions. That's a, that's a really bad thing to do, especially if you got an audience, you got a following. People are like, oh, those, that's very reasonable when they're just spouting emotions. My emotions tell me this is bad, so I need to reject it. And let's not focus on the evidence. Let's focus on the things that make me feel a certain way in my heart. And that's based on my emotional reaction to that. Let's reject it. So let's hear him out and see what he says. Again, this is in preparation for the Duffy Slick debate. So he talks a little bit about that in this podcast. On uh, open theism, and it's been difficult to find information on what he's uh, actually taught, and I went That's through Will Duffy and talking uh, about. read some of his, of his material. Interesting comments will be coming out of that during our debate. And uh, also, uh, his pastor, apparently, uh, I, I, was, <laughs> I was reading through his material today, his opening statement. Man, uh, talk about bad logic, uh, bad thinking. So bad logic, bad thinking, those are code words for, I don't like what you're saying. My emotions make me reject it. And you'll hear that. You'll hear it. What he's actually talking about, his what he considers facts and reasoning, it's just his emotions. And so equate those two. When he says uh, bad thinking, bad logic, anytime he says the word logic, substitute the word emotions. My name's Matt Slick, and my emotions dictate what I believe. And watch his emotional arguments in this very podcast. Uh, seriously, it's in fact it's bad enough that I've decided I'm going to write a, a, a rebuttal to his opening <laughs> statement by just, uh, just that opening statement. Uh, Will Duffy had a, a huge hand in crafting Bob Enyard's opening statement, and James White just ignores it, ignores everything that Enyard actually said, and it's very biblically based. It focuses on the Bible, the biblical texts, and well, James White ignores it. So I'm waiting for, I'm hoping for, I'm praying that. Matt Slick writes a response to this opening statement because it'll be interesting to see how he deals with the material. My guess, uh, my money, is on him emotionally rejecting what's laid out there. Oh, the Bible says something I don't like, and so we got to reject it. we got to just say, oh, that's, that's an anthropomorphism. This made-up word, the word that was specifically made up to discount things in the Bible that you don't like, that, that, that word, that's what he's going to use. A made-up word, a word made up for the specific purpose of discounting the Bible. And then we talk about that in the God is Open on our website. Let's jump there real quick, and we can't see if uh, we can't find that article on anthropomorphisms. 
All right, here we go. We got the origin of the term anthropomorphism, a word that first occurred in the vocabulary in 1782. And it's, uh, let's see, it's, it's an expression or discourse whereby something is attributed to God, which properly belongs only to man. This, this is the origin of this word. It's a word invented to explain away the Bible. So anthropomorphism appeared in this uh, supplemental work as well, 1753. And anthropomorphism, among divines, the heir of those who ascribe a human figure to the deity. But basically, it's ascribing human stuff to God. It's a concept. It's, it's, it's not one that you find in normal literature and normal writing and normal history. It's one invented specifically for the Bible. And this is what he appeals to. Everything's an anthropomorphism. Everything's this invented word. And this word is invented to just dismiss the Bible. He doesn't like the Bible. He doesn't care about the Bible. And so they have to inv invent figures of speech that don't actually exist to explain away the Bible. So that's funny. That's funny. But let's hear him go on. Just commenting in through various areas of what he said. It is demonstrating uh, some very bad thinking. But, um, and I'm serious. Bad thinking means Matt Slick's emotions. Uh, bad thinking equals you say something that makes Matt Slick have an emotional reaction. I don't like that. You said something that I don't like. And guess what? If this is true, then this other thing's true. And this other thing I don't like. So, therefore, the thing you said is true also has to be false. Never mind that I'm making absurd jumps of logic between those two, and, and my reason for rejecting your premise is based on my own conclusions. It's all, all based on emotion. Never mind that. Never mind that. I'll just keep using the word logic, and eventually, eventually maybe it'll catch on and people will think I'm actually being a rational human being, rather than letting my emotions dictate my beliefs. Bad thinking. And so, uh, uh, I thought what we talk, talk about, and I'll do, you know, talk about open theism. What is open theism? Open theism is a teaching that the future is open, that God does not know everything in the future exhaustively. And because he does not know everything in the future exhaustively, therefore, uh, he doesn't know what's really going to happen in a lot of areas. So that's called open theism. Now, basically, what it is, uh, what it is in my opinion, and I'm just going to be talking generically. And I've got reasons. I'm going to be generic. I've got I'm not going to give uh, too many specifics. I want to show my hand for the debate. But open theism, uh, open theism is a heresy. And All right. So notice this language because we'll be referencing this again in the podcast. He'll he'll go on to say later in this in this this uh, lecture series that he's doing this lecture. He'll say that the Bible was written for man's understanding to talk to man on man's level. Except for if you actually believe the things that the Bible is telling you, then you're a heretic. You're a heretic if you take the Bible at face value, how the Bible was written to communicate to us. Instead, you got to throw away the Bible. The Bible says something, throw it in the trash. That's not what it means. We got our own theology that we bring to the text, and we got our little proof texts. And no, I don't read what open theists say about those proof texts and respond to their arguments about those proof texts. I'll just still just appeal to those proof texts without even considering what my critics say. And, th and that's how his theology works. He doesn't care about what the Bible says. He wants his theology. He wants to import it onto the text. And you'll really hear that in his argumentation, his logic, and how, how with what disdain he shows the Bible. He hates the Bible. He hates how it's worded, how it's phrased, and he mocks the Bible. 
This is one of the reasons I don't think Matt Slick is a Christian. He's not, because he, he hates Yahweh. If Yahweh, the God of the Bible, were the real God, and he knew it, he wouldn't worship him as God. He would reject God because he just, he finds it distasteful. You'll hear that in his voice, his reasoning, his argument. Let's go on. And it's a man-centered theology that reduces God and elevates man. Okay, so the Bible it has man as made in the image of God. And, it, you know, Calvinists keep talking about man-centered theology, man-centered theology. Well, God has a man-centered creation where man is the pinnacle of creation made in his image. And Calvinists hate this. They hate man's relationship to God so much so that they, they do their best to, to, de- take, to demean man. Remember our podcast with that crazy... Dr. Zoidberg guy who's like worm theology. Oh, we're the lowest things in the world. We're lower than worms. Like, what are you talking about? We are made in the image of God. We have value because we are like God in some capacity, right? In some capacity, do you deal with this? Do you talk about how we're made in the image of God? And Calvinists don't believe that. They don't believe it at all because God, they think, is perfectly simple, a pure actuality, outside of time, in this it's this eternal, timeless void in in this uh, singularity where there's no predicates, no descriptors can be given to God. God can form no relationships because relationships mean change. This is their idea of God. It's not a biblical idea of God. He throws away the Bible. You take the Bible, if you're a Calvinist, you just chuck it in the trash and then you, you just replace everything with your own theology that you bring to the text. You say, Oh, I know the Bible says this. Uh, let's just dismiss it. I got my own theology. I'm bringing to the text. Now, it reduces God because what it essentially is doing is stating that God is limited to time, uh, has uh, certain aspects and attributes. Yeah, I forgot about that uh, key doctrine in the Bible that God is timeless. You're, dude, dude, you're, you do not care about the Bible. Uh, you, you're 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 venturing on all sorts of weird, speculative, non-biblical theology, Platonism. The Yahweh in the Bible is eternally active in relation to man, acting in time. There's, there's no even presumption that timelessness is a category that uh, Yahweh can be in. There's no timelessness in the Bible. You don't get time travel. You don't get changing the past. You, you don't get any of this stuff. Instead, you get statements of uh, endless duration. You presentism, presentism. God says, something in the future will remind me of something of the past. And things are brought to God's attention. They're, they're brought to his mind. And this is how we see God interacting in the Bible. And he'll take all of that. He'll say, no, we throw all that in the trash. Remember, we, we got this made-up thing, this made-up concept called anthropomorphism that we impose on the Bible, which really means, and, and here's what they do. This is, this is what that means. Everything in the Bible they don't like, they throw away. And then they grab two-word sentences here and there, and they say, oh, see this? That's our proof for our Platonism. That's, that, that, see this, this little phrase about God experiencing time? That one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. God experiencing time. That phrase about God experiencing time means God's timeless. It's like, what? What? You're insane. That's nuts. That must work in concert with time. And also, um, that was called, generally speaking, they hold to libertarian free will, open theists still. What's libertarianism? Libertarianism is the teaching that... uh, Human, there's kind of two ways to talk about it. There's libertarianism and compatibilism. Libertarianism says that man's free will 
is, well, let me do it this way. Compatibilism says that God's election and predestination is compatible. Uh, the doctrine of God's predestination election is compatible. Let's talk about what he's doing. He's opening up with uh, philosophy, and Will Duffy was smart on this front. He, he centered the debate around, is open theism a better representation of the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible? And Matt Slick doesn't reference the Bible. Not very often, maybe once in a while, casually glancing, but he focuses on philosophy. And this is where Will Duffy could really shine in this debate. If he refocuses to the Bible, what Matt Slick is saying is not biblical theology. He's not referencing the Bible. He's referencing Platonism, Platonism. And you, you don't hear the references to the Bible because the Bible does not support this theology, the theology that Matt Slick has to import onto the text. So Will Duffy, he needs to refocus and keep focusing on the Bible and call Matt Slick out. He also needs to ground the debate. He needs to say, my opponent here, he's going to be referencing philosophy throughout this debate. I'm going to be the one referencing the Bible. And there's going to be the stark difference. So every time Matt Slick does this, where he appeals to philosophy rather than the Bible, Will Duffy could point that out and say, look, look at him again and again and again. He's not referencing the Bible. This debate is about, is the God of open theism the God of the Bible? Not, is the God of open theism the God of the Platonic philosophy that Matt Slick loves, loves more than the Bible. Because anything in the Bible that contradicts his beloved philosophy, he just throws out the window. It's this, it's this non-falsifiable view where you just ignore everything you don't like and uh, just grab little statements here and there to piece together your Platonism that you really do like. You throw away the Bible and then you pull out little phrases. That's what Matt Slick does. ...with human free will. Libertarianism would say that's not the case, that God's foreknowledge and God's infinite knowledge of things is not compatible with, with human free will. And the reason they'll say that is because um, a person, uh, when he decides to wear a shirt, like I decided to wear this shirt tonight, and I thought about, uh, uh, actually I had a, tried another shirt on that had the Japanese uh, symbol for, for uh, grace, but uh, I decided to wear this one instead. And so when I decided to, to wear this shirt tonight, was I free to make a different decision? Well, yes. In one sense, I was free. In another sense, no. But what the open theist would say, if God knew that you were going to choose this, and when it came time to you to choose to wear it, you weren't free to choose anything else. It's horrible logic. It's, it's bad. Okay, so he, he doesn't understand the paradoxes that time travel and this knowledge of the future creates. So let, let's put it in practical terms. If God knows what shirt I will wear tomorrow, can God tell me what shirt I will wear tomorrow? And then can I make a different decision? All things considered, can God tell me? And God's going to factor in which shirt he tells me, that, that he knows that he's going to tell me which shirt I'm going to wear. So God factors in all future variables. And, you know, I'm not going to go shirtless. I'm going to pick out a shirt. Can God tell me which shirt that will be? And then can I choose something different? So what that tells us is you can't have the effects after the cause. You can't reverse cause and effect. It doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. Uh, it's not rational on any level whatsoever. That's why all time travel movies fall apart. And Matt Slick just doesn't understand this. He doesn't get it. And instead, he just says, oh, the problem solved. The problem solved because you can know and not force someone. That's not, not the issue. The issue is, can God know the future? And if God knows the future, can that be changed? There's rational creatures who can act. Can they do something else if they know what the future entails? Right? 
that's your falsifiability. That, that's how you test your theory with that practical example of what, what can happen. And all time travel movies fall apart. This, this time travel sci-fi philosophy of timelessness, it falls apart as well. E either that or you got fatalism. Either God, God cannot even change the future. If God knows something will happen, if a little kid is going to get raped tomorrow, and I know, yeah, it's, it's, it's an emotional thing. But in Calvinism, God cannot stop that rape if he knows it will happen because God is outside of time, viewing time from this outside perspective. That rape will happen no matter what. Not even God. God is stuck in this fatalism, this box of fatalism of Calvinism. Thinking. But this is one of the arguments that they use because they want human freedom, human ability, human-centeredness, man-centeredness. Human yeah, personally, I don't care about human freedom. We could all be robots. It wouldn't phase me whatsoever. But it's, it's easy for him to frame the debate as, oh, this is what they want to believe. I don't, I don't care. I, I don't you know how, how much caring I give. Zero. Uh, none. And so the nature of reality, it does, my emotions, I don't care about importing my emotions on reality. I care more about what reality tells to us. But this debate's going to be about the Bible. So are you going to prove this from the Bible or are you not? That, that man's robot, man's fated, nothing could ever happen except for fate. And watch his argumentation. So he's going to say, God said this and then this happened. Or he's not even going to do that. Most Calvinists, they, they say, God said this will happen. See? And he does that in this, in this discussion too. He says, God told Adam and Eve the day they eat of the fruit, they will die. Did it happen? And I think some of the people in the audience were like, no. And then he, he recoils at them. He's like, yeah, God said it would happen. So that means it did happen. Rah! So he's not falsifiable. So even though God tells people that they will die, and the phrase there is dying, you shall die. And that same phrase is used of King Abimelech. When the King Abimelech was uh, after Abraham's wife, God says, dying, you will die. It's about physical death, really, when you read the context. Not all open theists agree with that. But when I read it, when I read it in context, it's about physical death. And what's actually happening in Genesis is God is showing mercy. He had promised a physical death, but he didn't deliver on it because this is a new creation. And God's not yet jaded by creation to such an extent that he destroys all of creation, as we find in Genesis 6. But look at that. His, his theology is non-falsifiable. He'll point to events that didn't actually happen as proof positive that uh, everything God says will happen. And he'll just ignore those instances that open theists point to where God says something's going to happen and then it doesn't happen. And he just tries to explain it away. Oh, God said that he'll change his mind when different things occur. Therefore, any failed prophecy falls under that. Well, that, that's not useful. What? So God can say anything he wants. And then if it doesn't come true, then you just say, oh, it's conditional. In open theism, all prophecy is conditional. All prophecy is conditional. The one thing that we need to focus on as open theists is the move on Eli's house, where Eli was promised an eternal house. This was an unconditional promise. And the change wasn't, I'm destroying your house. You've been bad, and now I'm destroying your house. The change was from an unconditional promise to a conditional promise. And Calvinists, they can't respond to that. Because this is a change. This, this is saying, I had a unilateral promise, but you guys were so bad, now I'm changing it to a conditional promise. And that violates all their sensibilities of their all their little 
justifications, their cognitive dissonance that they create in their own heads, how to explain away passage after passage of God saying something's going to happen and then that thing not happening. Humanism, the idea that man's freedom is the, in a sense, the end all. That's not what open theists would say. They say the greatest attribute of God is his love. And his Some open theists say that, not all. His desire to, uh, to love people freely in what's called libertarian uh, free will. And though not all open theists hold purely to libertarianism, there are variations and things like this. But I'm only going to speak in, in, um, in, in the basic generic terms. And so in order for men to be free, God can't exhaustively, perfectly know every choice we're going to make. Otherwise, we're not free to make a choice contrary to that when we make a choice. Now, there's some logical problems with that. And uh, there's, there's some problems. But... Um, so uh, logical problems means emotional Matt Slick problems that uh, he doesn't like what the consequences of that would be. And so he rejects the premise based on his emotions. So in Matt Slick, every time he says logic, he really means emotions. In libertarianism, man is not restricted by his sinful nature. So in the Bible, the Bible says that the natural man cannot receive the things of God for their foolishness to him. All right, so that has nothing to do, one thing doesn't have to do with another thing. That's that's another thing about these Calvinists. They love focusing on like predestination and and uh, man's sinful nature. All that, that's not part of the debate. So hypothetically, God could have created a world with totally depraved beings that are always depraved. That doesn't mean that the future is set. That doesn't mean that Calvinism is now true and the entire future cannot change in what, what any way whatsoever. When I'm playing The Sims, and Sims is like a... The, a game where you control little individuals. Uh, these these little characters, they're called Sims. They walk around the house. They get jobs. They they take baths and stuff like that. They have family interactions. Well, in the game, there's like a little free will button. So they're they're fairly autonomous without that with with that button checked. So like if they need to go to the bathroom, they'll go to the bathroom. You could uncheck that. You could say. No, you guys don't have free will anymore. And then you have to specifically tell them to go to the bathroom if they're going to go to the bathroom. Stuff like that. So that doesn't mean just because I take away someone's free will, just because human beings might not have free will, that doesn't mean that God can't change the future. That doesn't mean that the future is now set. Just because God predestines, let's say God has an eternal list of names of people he's going to be saved. That doesn't mean open theism's false, does that? Because when I'm playing The Sims, I could have my make my characters have another baby. I can name that baby what I want, and I can make that baby the, do the things that I want to make it do. Because I just I control it meticulously. That doesn't mean the future set. None of your conclusions falsify open theism. It's a red herring, a red herring that you interject because you really love predestination. You really love this talk about will and sinful nature. That's your bread and butter that you rely on. And I don't know, these Calvinists, they obsess over these issues, these, these non-issues. But that's, that's not what's at issue here. In, in the Bible. So if Will Duffy, what he could do if he wants to disarm this uh, hijacking, this this whole Calvinist, let's talk about predestination. He could say all of that's irrelevant to the, the point at hand. All of that's irrelevant to if the future's open or not. All of that's irrelevant to if God can change or if God, God can do new things, if the future is set or not. All of that information, all, all that that you want to be pressing, irrelevant 
It's not part of this debate. Let's go to the Bible. Let's focus on who Yahweh is. Let's talk about the attributes and characteristics of Yahweh. And let's focus on those Platonistic attributes that you really love, but you never talk about. A pure simplicity, pure actuality, uh, non-contingency, outside of time, eternal, timeless, singularity, impassibility, the inability to be related in any sense to any other creature. That's, that's who you believe God is. That's not Yahweh. That's not the Bible. That's Platonism. You are a Platonist, Matt Slick. 1 Corinthians 2.14 is a slave of sin, a hater of God. Romans 14, uh, 6 through uh, 20, or four, Romans 6, 14 through 20, actually, in Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12, talks about they don't seek for God, can do no good. So, uh, so notice one thing that Maslick does, and uh, he does it in all his debates, discussions. Uh, he just kind of references verses. He never turns to the context and goes over in detail how he's getting his views out of those specific contexts. Remember the Slick Arthur Hagland debate? Arthur Hagland wanted to keep Matt Slick on John 6. He wanted to talk about what John 6 means in context, and he references parallel passages in John 6 or in, in the book of John with the same passage, but uh, it talks about Jesus's task being fulfilled. Matt Slick wanted to take John 6 as metaphysics. Oh, everyone can only come to God if they're enlightened and no one can fall away. It's this metaphysical keeping. But then we learn in the book of John that this is a tasking. It is a tasking that Jesus fulfilled. It's not metaphysics. It was a tasking and there's an exception to the tasking. So although it says you're not going to lose one of them, there was an exception, and that exception was Judas. So is it a metaphysical absolute that we're talking about here, or is it tasking? And, and Matt Slick doesn't like context. He doesn't like looking at possibility and variant readings past his own bubble, past his own filter. We talked just, just about this in the Jordan Peterson where there's these two movies playing. And his movie, his Calvinist movie, is when you look at the Bible, you just try to grab out texts that speak to what you want to believe, and then you just read it like that. And you don't consider any other possibilities. Because reading comprehension, the fact that language is malleable, the fact that language has multiple double meanings, the, the fact that language needs context to be interpretable. You can't just go do word studies on a little word here or there to figure out what a passage is talking about. You have to look at how it adds to the context, how, how it works within the flow of argumentation of the author. And he doesn't do that with his proof text. He just kind of throws them out there and he doesn't explore them. Uh, even though the Bible tells us that the human is, is enslaved to sin, what they will say is that uh, he's not enslaved to sin such that he cannot, of his own free will, make a choice to believe in God. Uh, it's some open theists, maybe. Some open theists, maybe not. It depends who you're talking to, but irrelevant to the subject at hand. And this is basically an Arminian position, Wesleyan kind of Arminianism, and uh, unbiblical. And so, uh, ne nevertheless. Uh, <laughs> unbiblical, because I threw out all the texts of the Bible I didn't like. I just threw them out. Uh, they don't mean anything. They're just, they're just nonsense. They're this word I made up to dismiss them. So I made up a word to dismiss them, and they're that word, and so we ignore them. And guess what? What you're left with after we dismiss all the parts of the Bible we don't like is my theology in these verses, if you read these verses in the specific way I want you to read them. That, that's, that's the basis of his theology. So uh, there's different reasons that the, the open theist will say God doesn't know the future. One of the reasons is the future doesn't exist. 
so God can't know the future. How about uh, Yahweh in the Bible is is actually depicted as not knowing the future? And biblical scholarship outside of uh, people like Slick, Slick's not a scholar, White's not a scholar, but biblical scholarship will agree with this. They'll say, yeah, like uh, Christine Hayes, she'll write, Yahweh in the Bible is not this a god of philosophical abstracts, this Platonistic god where he knows everything, he's outside of time, pure simplicity, pure actuality. Biblical scholarship recognizes that Yahweh is not the god of the pagan Greeks. He's not the god of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And he's not that god. He's not the god of Platonic Greek speculation future if it doesn't exist now that's philosophically difficult to justify let's talk about that real quick the number one scholar on omniscience throughout all ancient cultures it was uh, perizoni perizoni and he wrote the book the all-knowing god and he he looks at all these different ideas of omniscience throughout all these different cultures on all these different deities. And you know what his conclusion is? The the number one scholar of omniscience in the world between various religions, comparative religions, is that Yahweh knows knows the present. God or Yahweh knows things that are happening. It's not this omniscience future of all things that's going to happen in the future. Nothing like that. God knows because he observes. This is a procedural knowledge that he gains this knowledge from an outside source. And that's not allowed. And Will Duffy should actually point this out when he's talking to Matt Slick. Matt Slick's idea of God's omniscience is that God knows all acts in a, in a single uh, event, uh, one that he doesn't get this knowledge passively. This knowledge doesn't come to God. God doesn't look to know. This knowledge is identical to God, and it comes from inside himself rather from external sources. Plus, this knowledge is not actually knowledge of all things. Matt Slick would reject that. He says, God can't have all experiential knowledge. There's a certain types and categories of knowledge that God cannot have. And the Jewish concept of Yahweh is that when God knows King David, that knowledge isn't, oh, I know your height and weight and blood type or whatever. That It's a personal knowledge. God knows my inward beings. He knows what words I'm going to say next. It's a personal knowledge. It's experiential knowledge based on relationships. And that type of knowledge is what Matt Slick denies to God. He doesn't believe that God has that type of knowledge. And especially even if he claims that, you know, God can have some experiential knowledge through, through maybe Jesus or something, he can't have all experiential knowledge. So even he limits it, limits the extent of God's knowledge. And he'll do this with a straight face, not understanding how contradictory he is, how how much double standards he interjects into the discussion, into the debate, with all his assumptions that he brings to the Bible and to, to interacting with other Christians. He calls them heretics. He calls them heretics, people who accept Yahweh as the Bible describes Yahweh. Because... An open theist at this point is now venturing into the nature of time. And what is time in defined terms? What is time as it relates to the future, the past, the present, things like that? Maybe we could stick to the Bible on that. The, the biblical idea of time is uh, presentism. It's what we experience. It's what they're familiar with. That's how they wrote and thought. And it's not this Platonic idea that uh, Augustine had. And he said God can't even talk because talking involves sequence. You know, it takes Platonism to destroy the biblical concept of time, the normal concept of time that you and I all have, everyone except for these 
these uh, people who think they're all scholarly or whatnot, they reject the Bible and then they replace it with their own conceptions of how reality should be because of their emotions. Like that. And uh, I've noticed that in, in um, the literature by open theists, they beg the question a great, great deal. They assume certain things without defining their terms and they can't justify their positions. Uh, here's another one that they will say. So how you should normally operate is what, how you experience life, how you understand life, those should be your base expectations. Any writer when writing literature or history or anything are, are going to bring those basic assumptions, how they normally experience life, they're going to bring that, import those into the text. And so if you're going to contradict some of those normal experiences and normal things that we all understand and experience, if you're going to contradict that and say that the Bible doesn't teach those things, you, you're going to have to have some so, sort of solid evidence, solid proof from the Bible in order to do that because your, your claims is that those individuals who wrote the Bible and who are reading the Bible are inherently going to know this other thing that we're not familiar with in our day-to-day -day lives. So the burden of evidence is the person importing new and strange things that are not part of our normal day experience. Timelessness, for example. It, no, we, we experience things in time. We experiencing experience things as the history the past is done and gone away with. It can't be changed. It's, it's gone forever, and the future is not yet. We experience presentism. We experience this life. So if you're going to import something else onto the Bible, you need something solid, something like Augustine talking about how sequential events cannot happen in God, and God has to use a parrot creature in order to mouth words to to John the Baptist as he's baptizing Jesus. That's what you have to do, but you don't do that. You don't do that. Uh, God chooses not to know the future, even though it can be known. This is another view. So God chooses what, ask, what areas of the future not to know. I find that problematic because how does he know what part not to know? Yeah, so that, that could probably be stated a little bit better as the future is not real. The future is not something that you can know. And so when they talk like that, they're usually trying to make concessions to their audience to try to try to use language that the audience has been uh, inundated with from Calvinists and the like who say, oh, God must know X, Y, and Z. God must know the crucifixion is going to happen. He must know it. So they use that common language, they adopt it and say the future is partly set and partly indeterminate. And the things that God wants to bring about, he's going to bring about. What they're not saying is that God has every cough of every Roman soldier known from all eternity while Jesus is being crucified. What they're saying is that he has definite plans that he will definitely fulfill. Uh, you know, but... Um... Well, they will have their responses. They're not dumb, okay? There's some intelligent people who hold to this, and they hold to it for, some, for what they see in Scripture. That's, that's uh, actually pretty magnanimous, considering Matt Slick's demeanor to give compliments to people he disagrees with. So that's, that's an interesting part of this. That is unexpected. As well. In open theism, because, now check this out, because God does not know exhaustively the future, then it's possible for God to make mistakes. Because if he doesn't know what's going to happen, he might expect something and be surprised by it. So uh, God can make mistakes, uh, and he takes risks. Uh, he takes. So you might want to, if you're introducing a concept like that, you might want to interject 
some biblical evidence that that open theists point to. And mistakes is probably the wrong language. That might be the non-central fallacy when you're calling something a mistake that otherwise wouldn't be considered a mistake. And even though it might technically meet the definition of mistake, it's not. It wouldn't be considered a mistake if you or I did it. It'd just be like, oh yeah, that that happened differently than we expected. But in the Bible, God regrets two of his own actions. It's not God regretting that people turned out bad. It's God regretting that he did something previously. And one of them is Genesis 6, and he says that I regret that I have made man. He's not regretting, oh, I regret that man became wicked. The text says something very differently. And the text quotes both Yahweh and the narrator. And so Matzlik's going to override both Yahweh's statement about himself. He's going to override the narrator's statement about God and interject what he believes on top of that. Throw, throw away what God says. I, oh, you say something, God. Oh, I don't care. I got my own theology. Uh, the narrator says something. Oh, I don't care what the Bible says. I got my own theology. Throw those in the trash and uh, just ignore the fact that God's repenting of his own actions. Also the case with King Saul. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. And this is found both by the narrator and it's uh, found by in the mouth of God. And you know how he tries to fight it? He quotes people. He quotes a false prophet, Balaam, and he quotes uh, Samuel. And he pulls Samuel out of context because Samuel's talking about God not repenting of repenting of making Saul king. God's saying, I'm not going to just restore the kingdom to you. I've repented that I made you king and I'm not going to change my mind again. And he'll take that and says, oh, God never changes his mind. What? Read. Read the context. Understand what's happening in context. And what you're doing is what I talked about before, where you throw away all the parts of the Bible you don't like, and then you look for specific phrases that you could try to take to to reinforce your theology, and then you'll disclude any alternative readings. It's a very dishonest way to do theology. Risks with people's people's, uh, future free will choices. Now, um, I found a very rare document. Archaeologically, I had to spend a lot of money and go over to the Middle East and just dig it on my own. I'm going to I start pulling up some documents from the open theist perspective of things that God Himself actually says from the open theist perspective when things don't go right. They're written down, and I just kind of transcribed it here. And so I had a translation from the original Blarney Yiddish language. And so some of the things that God would say in the open theist perspective is things like this. Oops. So, because, uh, you know, God takes risks. And uh, God could also say, uh, and uh, uh-oh, and oh no, and dang it, and sh-. So look at the utter contempt he has for the God of the Bible. This is, again, why I do not think Matt Slick is a Christian. He would not worship Yahweh. I actually have a response article to what he's quoting here. This is an old article by his where he tries to mock open theism. He's mocking God. He's mocking God. You're a blasphemer. Matt Slick, you're not a Christian. You're a Platonist. You are a Platonist. And so what I do is I go through his article and I take his little oopses and then I put biblical equivalents. And what Matt Slick likes to do is he relies on emotion. This is an emotional like, oh, see, if, if God said oops ever, then we shouldn't worship him. If God says oops, that's laughable. But that's the biblical Yahweh who says, I regret that I have made man. If I were to do it all over again, I would not make man. And Matt Slick has utter contempt for Yahweh. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. He says, Doe, 
And uh, God talks about in Jeremiah 2.30, In vain I have chastened your children. They received no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. In vain I have chastened. I have done an action, and there's not been the results that was expected. There was been, it's been for nothing, this action. And so I just go through, and I give biblical parallels to all his mocking insults. Matt Slick hates, despises Yahweh. And then he says all these texts that talk about uh, God changing his mind or God, God uh, regretting his past actions, stuff like that. He just disclaims them. Oh, they're in the Bible. We just reject them because I got this word that I made up in order to reject these texts. The word I made up specifically to reject these texts are the reasons we need to reject these texts. No, no Matt Slick. Bad, bad. Take an English class. Take, take anything that talks about how language works. Take one on on figures of speech, on idioms, and how they work, and, and what their meanings are supposed to be, and how you identify idioms. Take anything, learn, break out of your Calvinist bubble, your filter, this false reality that you've constructed for yourself. Shucks. Uh, let me get back to you on that. Uh, wow, that was a surprise. I hope it works out. Oh, no. Now, what's he going to do this? Contempt. Contempt for Yahweh. He hates God. Time. Um, no, I haven't heard a joke about the open theist. Let's see. Uh, please, oh, please, please, please believe in me. Uh, I'll not do that again. Well, look at this. Look at this. This is this is sickening. So it's a, how long? It says, he says, oh, let me get back to you on that. And God says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation? He's, he's lamenting. How long am I going to have to endure this? The endearing. This is in time. This is God suffering. God has passability. God's not impassable. God's not immutable. This is God suffering as recorded in the Bible. Matt Slick sees the Bible, throw it in the trash. I don't like it. It says something. I want to mock it. I mock the Bible. I mock Yahweh. Throw the Bible in the trash. I got my own theology. And if you don't believe me, just listen to me mock God. Listen to me mock Yahweh. And that will convince you that this God in the Bible that the Bible describes, that that's, that's crazy. It's ludicrous. You're a heretic if you believe the Bible. I hope it works out. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I re might repent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of their evil doings. This is Jeremiah. He says, perhaps, it, it, perhaps this is going to work. You know, <laughs> these people, I will go down and see whether they have done according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. That's pretty explicit language that you throw in the trash, Matt Slick. You throw the Bible in the trash. You're not a Christian. That didn't turn out so well, did it? I'll try and get it right next time. I'd answer your prayer, but I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, hey, I just learned something. Uh, well, I can always go to plan B. Well, I can always go to plan C. Well, I can that's exactly That's exactly what happens. Look at this. In Exodus, he talks about the different plans going on. Let's go look at this. And he said, cast it to the ground. Okay, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, furthermore, now put your hand in your bosom. Yep. He, he does all these miracles with Moses. Moses, uh, he teaches them all these things. He says, if this doesn't work, then we'll try this. If this doesn't work, then we'll try this. If they don't believe or heed this message, here's another sign. And he gives them a series of signs. He gives them a cascading contingency plan about what's going to happen if other things don't work out. That's exactly what the Bible says. Matt Slick hates God. He hates God. I always go to plan D. So uh, these are some of the things that, uh, you know, in a facetious manner. 
Watch him mock God. Uh, this issue of God taking risks and making mistakes, how could you trust the God of open theism? How could you seriously trust the God of open theism? Okay, it, your problem is with the God of the Bible. If you don't think the God of the Bible is trustworthy, that means you're a low-stability individual. Uh, you're very fragile. And we'll talk about that a little bit later when you get to those points. But, you know, your, my trust in someone doesn't, doesn't re revolve around them not being able to change or not being able to know everything in the future. My trust in someone it usually relies on past performance, and that's what the prophets appeal to in the Bible. That's what Isaiah appeals to when he's trying to convince people to worship Yahweh. That's what he does. But anyways... If he doesn't know the future exhaustively, because does that mean that uh, you might not really be saved, or he might goof, or he might sin? If God might sin, that means definitely that uh, he doesn't exist. What? What? This is emotional fragility. Basically, his argument is, oh, if this was true, then my hyperbolic uh, assumptions are also true. And because I don't like my hyperbolic assumptions, uh, then the premise is also false. It's emotionalism. Emotional. You're an emotional man, Matt Slick. Now, um, yeah, there's, uh, there's more. So, at any rate, uh, it could it be... I got all the emotions, all the emotions. Possible for him to sin. Could it be possible? He doesn't know. He could violate his own nature. Don't know. It gets some odd stuff in here. So God learns in open theism. He learns what actual actually happens. So in the Bible, that's pretty common. All Scott, biblical scholarship agrees. It's biblical scholarship, pagan mystics. So you got the Platonist mystics on one hand and biblical scholarship on the other. I'm going to go with the biblical scholarship and reading comprehension and the Bible rather than Platonism, mysticism, and discounting the Bible. He doesn't know what's actually going to happen. So one of the places they'll go to is Genesis 22 and, you know, and Abraham's <laughs> raising the knife over Isaac. And uh, God says, now I stop going to do that. Now I know that you're really going to do this, right? Um, well, the Bible says he knows all things, right? First John 3.20. I love this. I love this. He references uh, 1 John 3.20, but the previous chapter, the various previous chapter says that mankind, believers in Jesus, that we know all things, but uh, he's, he's not going to understand or he's not going to catch this himself. He's not going to try to use normal reading comprehension coming to both texts and try to treat them honestly and accurately. He's going to bring all his assumptions into any phrase he can about God that's not warranted from the text. He's going to treat these two same phrases. They're the same phrase. One's about man, one's about God, but he's going to treat them differently because he's really desperate. He's super desperate for his uh, proof text for his theology. And he doesn't even consider this. He's, he's reading the Bible through his filter, through his, his movie that's just divorced from reality. It's divorced from reading comprehension. It's divorced from there being alternative readings to these passages in context, in context, the same phrase is used about man. It doesn't, it doesn't strike a nerve. He's never even considered it. He's read that passage plenty of times. I'm sure he's read first John plenty of times. He, he read it and he just took it as a normal hyperbole or generalization or limited to context. Then he gets to the phrase about God and he'll take it as his Platonist metaphysics. You can't 
read. You, you hate the Bible. You, you discount normal reading comprehension skills when approaching the Bible. You use double standards in order to force your theology on the text. And Will Duffy is going to capitalize on this in the debate. This is my prediction of the future that you will be verifying right now as you're listening to this posted after that debate. And this John passage that he relies on over and over in this little this little teaching seminar of his, that's going to be his undoing because it's going to be illustrated on a grand scale to a grand audience, his double standards. Well, see, when you're in the open theist realm, what that really means is he, all, he knows all things that are knowable. But does it say that? It just says he knows all things. Except for you don't think God knows all things either. You don't think God has experiential knowledge, that God knows what it's like to be a child molester. Open theists don't think that God knows what it's like to be a child molester either. And we understand that there's limitations to what that phrase means. So you look at context. You look at context to define meaning. You can't pull phrases out of context and just divorce them from the context and then enforce your idiosyncratic readings onto the text. That's what you want to do. You're desperate for proof text because the Bible doesn't have anything about Platonism. The Bible doesn't have anything about pure simplicity, pure actuality, outside of time, pure pure singularity with uh, no contingencies, with no predicates, with no relationships, with no parts. You know, they want pure simplicity. The Bible doesn't describe that God. That God is the God of Platonism, Neoplatonism, Gnosticism. And that's who, who you really want. You don't want Yahweh. We've already looked at, you have utter contempt for Yahweh. You hate the God of the Bible. But what they'll do is they'll add those, well, it means, you know, it just means, you know, with normal. He doesn't know that stuff. We know that from other places. And they'll go to other places in the scripture. I'll talk about some things where it's pretty kind of tough. Uh, I can see why the open theists would say some of the things that they do. But... Um, so the open theists have good reasons. They point to good passages, but they're heretics because they believe the Bible. Oh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, so Genesis 22. So now I, I know. Well, there's a thing we, we, uh, we know called anthropomorphism, anthropos morphe, Greek anthropos and morphe. Yeah, so that's a made-up word. It's a word that's specifically invented to discount parts of the Bible that people don't want to believe. You're not going to find those anthropomorphisms in other texts. You'll find personification in uh, fables. You'll find metaphors in fables. Those have particular meaning and use. And listen to how he defines anthropomorphism. And his anthropomorphism is literally something that literally happened, that God became man, is an anthropomorphism to him. What? What? Man form. That, that's so not the common definition, when, even among example, Calvinists. Adam and Eve were in the garden, the pre-incarnate Christ came walking with them. And this is an anthropomorphism. Oh, pre-incarnate Christ. That's, that's, that's speculation, but that's okay. We'll, we'll roll with it. It's uh, irrelevant to this debate. But his, his idea of anthropomorphism is God taking human form. God actually has these attributes, literally has these attributes, and that's his idea of anthropomorphism, except for when we talk about God repenting or whatever else he wants to reject, God's anger, God's wrath, or, or God having any emotional state. Remember, God is impassable in Calvinism. God cannot change in any way whatsoever. And so he'll say those are anthropomorphisms too, but those are just words. We just reject those words. And except for this physical anthropomorphism where God actually had a body, 
it's not the normal definition of an anthropomorphism. I think Matt Slick needs to do a little bit more research about what Calvinism believes. Oh, a human manifestation of, of the divine. Christ Jesus is an anthropomorphism. It's a human manifestation of the divine. And so we would have these occurrences in the Old Testament as well, where God is seen in various places, etc. Um, and of course, never the Father, another topic. And uh, so doesn't God know what's in the heart? What about Exodus 33? Exodus 33, the Father is seen. He covers Moses with his hand and shows him his backside. Okay, so just ignore that, because what he actually wants is this immutable, impassable Father that's outside of time, pure singularity that can't be seen in any way, sense, or form. And so, yeah, the Bible contradicts your ideas about who God must be. Of, of people? Well, some open theists have to say that he doesn't even know that. Doesn't know. God's got to hope things work out. And Look at this. Appeals to emotion. Moralistic fallacy. There's some open theists that will say, yes, God knows the present exhaustively. Well, if he knows the present exhaustively, then doesn't he know what's going to happen when, when uh, Abraham raises the knife? And he says, don't. No, why would he? Okay, so let's let's take this example to figure out what's going on here. Let's say my wife wanted to entrap me. So let's say she had an attractive friend, and so she wanted to see if I would be faithful or not to her. So she sends her friend to me, and her friend propositions me. Hey, we should go see a movie and get a hotel or something afterwards. She's coming on to me, and if I, I say no, and I shut her down, and I say, let's not do that, and, and it is an attractive friend, and so I have no reason to, you know, not say no and then she knows she knows from past experience from the testing she knows that that i will remain faithful to her so you know you can predict future behavior from past behavior and what does god say in genesis to abram abraham he says that i know your kids will follow me because i know you are faithful to me the past predicts the future and did that turn out so well for God? Did did all of Israel throughout all of history, did they worship Yahweh and no other God except for Yahweh? And were they always, or, or did something else happen where the Gentiles had to be grafted in because of Israel's disbelief? So did that turn out? Did the past accurately predict the future? And can you can you deal with this, Batsley? Can you deal with what the Bible actually says and records? Don't do it. How does he know he's really going to do it? How do you know if the last second, halfway down, he wasn't going to do it? How do you know if I didn't want to recall that friend in a week to to go back out on that movie and re-engage that friend? Well, you, you don't know, but past predicts the future. People's past actions and past behavior predicts their future behavior. And that's, that's our normal way of of dealing with individuals. You test individuals. You, you got a subordinate at work. You, you give them tests to see how they're going to perform in those tests, which predict how they're going to perform in future instances that are like that. It's just, that's, that's the normal way of looking at the world. Calvinists have to invent this, this crazy world where, where you need all these weird absolutes and you can only know things if you know them 100% definitively and there's no variation, there's no possibility of being wrong. And, and then they have to explain away all the times in the Bible where things don't turn out as expected. They just throw them away. Oh, those are anthropomorphisms or we got some other mechanism, cognitive dissonance. Uh, to reject those texts, reject those parts of the Bible, because it doesn't fit in our worldview that we constructed for ourselves, that mere nothing, nothing like how normal people operate in the real world. I can know the future as a human being. I'm going to go to this debate, this Matt Slick debate. 
Oh no, if that comes true, Chris Fisher must be omniscient. And if, if it fails, then that's definite. I could just say, oh, that was a conditional. That, that, that was conditional that I'd go to the debate. There wasn't an explicit conditional, but that was conditional on my car not failing. So yeah, condition, and that's what he'll do in this lecture. He'll say, well, God said things are conditional, that God won't do what he said he was going to do or what he thought he was going to do when things change. So therefore, when things don't happen, that's our, our explanation. Okay, okay. How does he know? He'll put this, he doesn't know. You know, it could be the last split. Yeah, my wife will know that I will remain faithful and true to her after she tests me because of the results of that test. She'll know. No, I know it's not the Calvinistic no, where it has to be object-based knowledge of things that absolutely definitely exist in the future. It's not that kind of Platonistic knowledge, but it's the normal way that we talk about how people know things. Second, he might just go, I can't quite do it, right? But God, when you raise it up, oh, God said, now I know. Wait, wait a minute, you've got a couple of seconds over here. Abraham could have changed his mind. See, this Calvinist, this is how they act. This is how they think. It's not like a normal person. It's like a psychotic person. They want these psychotic mechanisms that they want to import into how people act and think. And, and you can only have knowledge under these conditions. And, and if you say you know something, it has to be under these really odd conditions that are not normal to normal human communication, like when we talk about how we know things. It's this it's entire new standard. It's this entire lens which they view this Bible. And it's all nonsense. They all made it up. And it's it's just based on their Platonistic, their Platonistic worldview that this is how reality should be, even though they can't operate in the world world if they applied those same standards. So if first God to, to do this at this point, God's got to know, right? You got to learn, right? It doesn't make any sense. Now, some open theists will say that God doesn't even know that. He doesn't know the, the present exhaustively. God's sitting there going like... The entire Bible is written with this uh, reoccurring motif of God testing to know. God tests to know. This is mechanistic knowledge. This is or, or organic knowledge, knowledge that comes to God. It's not knowledge that the Calvinists say is implicit or uh, it's identical with God's essence. It's a knowledge that originates from it within the God self. It's knowledge that God learns from seeing and God, knowledge that God gains from testing, knowledge that God gains from doing. I, I know this will happen because I will make it happen. I will do it. So those are the ways that God receives knowledge, that God gets knowledge, but that's disallowed in Calvinism and Platonism because knowledge has to be identical to being. And Maslick doesn't, he doesn't seem to want to talk about this because the entire Bible is not written from this perspective where the knowledge originates within the divine self. Like this, what's he going to do? I hope it works out. Now that's the case. God counts to know. Remember Isaiah, the proof text that the Calvinists always turn to, that God counts the water to figure out how much water. God counts the hair on our heads. God counts to know. That's not allowed in Calvinism. That can't happen. How is God going to prophesy? How's he going to prophesy and bring things about exactly the, the, what he wants? You know, there's a prophecy... <laughs> I can't think of any way whatsoever. I'm trying to be honest and I'm trying to be accurate and represent open theism accurately, but I can't, I don't know a way that you could say something's going to happen in the future and then that thing happens. There's no way, no possible way. I can't think of any at all. It's not like I have plenty of open theists talking about this issue at all, but 
can't think of a way. I can't. What? And I could maybe get the notes and some stuff, but there's a, a prophecy out there on the web. Um, they go through different websites do it where the the very number of days that Jesus is prophesied to walk in to or, or ride into Jerusalem when he rode in on the on the, the uh, donkey. And the prophecy from I think it's Daniel is uh, when you look at it, it's a hundred. So let's pretend that that prophecy is not just made up in his own head, the land of make-believe, right? Can God decide when Jesus is going to ride into a certain city on a certain day? Does God have that power or is God incapable? What Calvinists think is that God is weak and powerless. Unless God knows the future exhaustively and unless he controls every single molecule, God can't do anything. God's just powerless. It's like, like really the creator of the universe who could uh, suck people to hell alive can't ensure that he could walk into a city on a certain day. That's what you think. You have utter contempt for God, utter contempt. And again, these are these standards that only exist in this Calvinist Platonic theology. It doesn't exist in the real world. You and I can make things happen. You and I have volition. You and I have power, and we often do. And the reason that our lives, we could go about our daily lives, is we have some assurance that the things that we're going to do in the future are going to come true. Right? Right? Or else, or else we couldn't live our lives. There'd be no stability. We wouldn't be able to do anything. But we normally operate where our volition and our power can affect the future, and we can do things. We can accomplish things. 173,385 days or some ridiculous number. It's 170 something thousand days. And it's prophesied. And it says from the time to time, from this mark, from that, from this many times, it goes through and you add it up, bang. Well, in the God of open theism, I could just see God going, okay, let's hope this works. Come on, step. See the mocking. Is, is it rational? Do people do that? Do they say, I'm going to go on a vacation on this day? And then they just like roll the dice like, I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know if something that I have very easily have power over is going to actually occur. I'm rolling the dice. So his mocking is out of proportion with reality. He's living in his own movie, his own bubble, where reality operates according to these standards that only exist in his own head. It's crazy. It's this second movie. Remember Scott Adams, our Scott Adams podcast. Calvinists live in their own movie. It's a separate movie from where everyone else, every rational, normal person on earth, where we live, Calvinists live in a different bubble world of their own creation, their own crazy creation. And uh, he's hoping that, that it turn, it turns out or that things turn out right because he doesn't know how things are going to work out. He doesn't know if people are going to choose the right things. How can he ordain these things and force these things and make them happen unless he manipulates eternity? Excuse me, manipulates the present. <laughs> there's no possible. I can't think of any possible way. Oh, it's, ah, no, there's no possible way. What? 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 As he's directing people. Well, this, I think, is a real intellectual problem for the open theist position. Um, I'm sure that they could have some, some uh, answers to that, but what I've been doing the past two, couple, three days now is going through the arguments from uh, this open theist I'm going to be debating and his pastor, who's an open theist, and uh, logical fallacies. <laughs> Man. 
Not logical fallacies. Do you know what, want to know what a logical fallacy is here? I'm going to pull up a book. I'm going to pull up a book that talks about logical fallacies. And we can see what a logical fallacy looks like. And it's not what Matt Slick thinks it is. Uh, his logical fallacies is something makes him feel bad, and so he wants to reject it. It's just absolute nonsense. So here's what a logical fallacy looks like. You've got some sort of premise, and you've got some sort of inference, and you've got some sort of conclusion. And the logical fallacy is where your premise doesn't lead to your conclusion. It's not, it's not because uh, you know, Matt Slick's emotions rejects some sort of uh, conclusion that he infers on your premise. That's, that's, that's a fallacy of logic. That is the moralistic fallacy, where you're just trying to reject something because of your emotional attachment to whatever conclusion might happen. Yeah, the actual logical fallacies is, is where there's a breakdown between premise and conclusion. But does he talk about this? Does he understand this? He doesn't understand logical fallacies. A logical fallacy in his mind is there's some sort of conclusion. Often the conclusion is just his preposterous uh, fantasy world that he imposes on what open theism might lead to. He says, if open theism was true, then this fantasy world that I constructed in my own head, that also would be true. And I don't like my fantasy world in my own head. Therefore, open theism is not true. That, that's what he thinks is logic. That's what he thinks is, is reasoning. And he thinks that anyone who says anything he doesn't like, just because he doesn't like it, that's a fallacy. That's what he thinks. That's what he thinks. He's not a rational person. Oh, like, come on, you know? Uh, and this is what happens when you don't submit to the word of God. Uh, you get logical fallacies. <laughs> You just throw away huge chunks of the Bible, all the Bible, anything that we don't like, we just throw it in the trash. And then we grab these little phrases like First uh, John 3, where God says he knows all things. John says that. But John also says that of man. So you just read it differently. You read the phrase about God different than the one about man. And then you just import our assumptions onto that phrase, the Platonism that we have in our own head. That's not described anywhere in the context and anywhere in the Bible. And then you'll see that we're, we're the ones who are right. If you just import everything that we want to believe onto the text and throw out all of the parts of the Bible we don't want to believe, then we're correct. Can't you see that? Can't you see that? So um, anyway, God can make mistakes in open theism. God learns. He takes risks. Just Appeals to emotion. That's an actual logical fallacy, as we talked about before. It's called the moralistic fallacy. You are Delicious. Not know the future. Man's free will is basically paramount. And the greatest attribute of God is love. My emotions make me reject these things because my emotions make me feel bad and they make me think things that I don't like. I'm going to reject those. I reject open theism because of my emotions. I'm an emotional man. Now, um, get to one more point here in a little bit, but they, they elevate God's love above basically everything else. His greatest attribute is love. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Is uh, not all open theists, but go on. Is that true? Is the greatest attribute of God is God love? Well, you know what? Let's just say, yeah, because that means he's going to love me. And if he loves me, the all-powerful king of the universe is going to want to make me a little bit more comfortable. So can you quote an open theist doing that? Because I think this is you projecting again. It's you projecting what you think open theists believe because, because this is how you think. 
as we have already talked about, all your, your appeals are emotional appeals. You think in emotional terms, and so you project this on other individuals. So unless you quote someone actually doing something like this, to saying these things, you know, it's like these Calvinists. They all come to these debate pages, and they're like, oh, Arminians, they just glorify man. They say, oh, my will has saved me. No one, no one in the history of the earth has ever said, my free will has saved me. It's not God's gift to me, salvation. No one's, no one's ever said that. It's their, their low security, this, this bubble world filled with the plastic bubble wrap and, and tinfoil and uh, Walmart plastic bags. And they built this little shell around themselves. And so they have to fantasize. They have to they build this a hallucinogenic construct of how reality works. And then they think that other people think like them. No, Calvinists, you're in your own bubble movie. You're, you're disconnected from all reality. You're a cult. You're a cult. So that's his greatest attribute. In other words, I'm going to find something that gives me what I need out of God. Now, people can say that, uh, well, go, no, God so loved the world. Yeah. But he also says in Isaiah 43, 7, the reason he created us was for his glory. So we could say that the reason he created us is for his glory, not to love us. Because he specifically says so. He does not say in the Bible that the reason he created us was to love us. But so how language works is that uh, there can be statements. There's God is love. Okay, what, what does that mean? There's, there's multiple meanings that can be assigned to the same phrase. Even, even if there's a phrase that says God made us for his glory, there's there's different readings of that. Is, is that uh, a hyperbole? Is it a generalization? Is it this metaphysical absolute? This is the reason. Is it one of several reasons? Is it just the primary reason of multiple reasons? Is the glory, is that in the love relationship? But, you know, there's, there's different ways to interpret the same set of words. How language works. Language is fluid. Language is not definitive. That's why you have to look at context. Matt Slick never looks at context. He just wants to quote these verses, skip over the context, and just assume meaning into the words without exploring if that's what those verses actually mean. It's this, this Calvinist disregard for the Bible. They hate the Bible. They want their own theology, so they grab little phrases out to try to make disjointed po points. They'll say, this phrase here, plus this phrase here, plus this phrase here. You have to read this one like this and this one like this. And if you add them all together, then look, you got uh, predestination, double predestination. You got got my view of, uh, you know, mankind, fallen mankind. It's all the, always these disjointed, multiple texts strung together in this fanciful it's this, this crazy theology, crazy theology. I'll put a meme on the screen, which kind of illustrates what they do with the Bible, where they draw absurd conclusions from one, one verse to another. And then the, the conclusions compound on each other to, to just snowball into this absurd conclusion. A general rule of thumb is that if, if, you're, if you're introducing like more than one step of logic, if it's not like explicit in a passage of the Bible, if you have to string multiple passages from multiple different places in the Bible to get to your theology, yeah, then that's, it's, it's totally made up. You just made something up that wasn't in the Bible. But for his glory. So I could say, well, the greatest attribute of God is his self-glory, his glorification of himself. Because nothing greater in the universe exists and he's worthy of honor and glory. You say that. And I 
And then you're going to import your understandings and your definitions of God's greatest glory, where man can't give anything to God, although the Bible throughout has, has people petitioning God. King David says, if I die, then you're not going to get the praise. You, you value my praise. You value me proselytizing in your name, so keep me alive. There, there, people offer God things. People bargain with God. There's this give and take relationship throughout the Bible, and you're going to try to reject that based on your Calvinism, based on your idea that uh, God is achieving his own greatest glory without any inputs from anything else in reality, and God is totally self-sufficient, and he can't get anything from humanity, and he's totally in this disjointed, pure singularity where he can't even interact with the world. That's your theology. It's crazy. And it's nonsense. I got a verse that says that's why he made us. It wasn't so he could love us. So I, I could make the case. So like what's the problem it. here is that this attribute of love is, is elevated above others. And it has a psychological and emotional advantage to do that. Just don't you want God to be loving and kind and, and, and the best for you? Oh, well, yeah, that's how you want God. Quote someone saying that because guess what? <clears throat> you're saying all sorts of emotional crazy stuff that uh, you're not appealing to the text. You're not appealing to reason. You're appealing to your own emotions. So we could show you doing that. You're the emotional one. You're the one that's playing off of uh, people's likes and dislikes. Oh, this is the way I feel that God should be. If God's not this way, then he's lesser. And we got to mock God. We got to mock God. You mock Yahweh. It's sickening. It's an emotional, emotional man. You are, and you appeal to the moralistic fallacy. That's all you do. That, that's your only argument is a moralistic fallacy. Of course, it's how we want it. Well, good. Don't you want him also to like and, and to be loving? Yes, that's what I want. And I like how you say, don't you want? Don't you want? Don't we want? Don't we want? It's about what we want. And that's exactly what happens in open theism. They elevate the attribute of God's love above other things. So his sovereignty, his omniscience, omnipotence, which they deny his, his omniscience, omnipotence. They deny these things. Well, you do too. You, you say that God doesn't have omniscience because he doesn't have experiential knowledge of all things. So you deny God's omniscience. So what are you talking about? Oh, you're saying that you have to define omniscience in a certain way, and that's the way omniscience should be considered. And then if anyone else uses the word omniscience differently than yours, even if it, it contains more knowledge than your definition, remember, open theists think that God does have experiential knowledge, knowledge that's denied to God in Calvinism. Open theists think God has that type of knowledge. And so in open theism, God has more knowledge than in Calvinism. But oh no, since you, you look at omniscience in a different way, in the way that the, the scholar, the scholar of all different omnisciences across all cultural spectrums, across all different religions, how they view different religions. He, he, he talks about how different cultures view omniscience for different deities. And he talks about Yahwehism, how God knows the present because he's watching. God has visual omniscience because they believe that type of omniscience that the scholars agree with, the scholars on omniscience agree with. Oh, they, they don't they don't like omniscience because they take the scholarly view that's supported by the Bible rather than your Platonistic view that's supported by your own head that you made up. You made up things in your head. And, uh, yeah, just, just, yeah, I'm not going to say too many things. I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> you guys get back. All right, so um, 
So we'll get into some other stuff. Uh, one of the things they say in open theism, one of the basic tenets, is that God can change his mind. Now, God can change his mind. So let's uh, have, a little, have a little fun here. All right? Okay, I'm going to do big. Big letters this time. It looks good. It looks good? You going to read that? You can read that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, here's, this is uh, infinity past. That's a symbol for infinity. Is that too big or too small? I mean, too small? A little bigger would be better. A little bigger? Yeah, here, I'm making it bigger than I immediately mess up. So he jumps real quickly to a Platonist uh, theory of time, where time is this uh, infinite past and future rather than the real idea, the idea we're presented with in the Bible, that presentism is true, that the past is not a thing, it's not an object, you can't go back to the past, it's done and gone away with. All that exists is now. That's, that's our normal experience with the world, that's a normal experience with how we deal with events in our own life. That's the normal way the Bible's written from. And he'll jump to this Platonistic theory of time, where everything is known objects from all past and future and present. And so he's, he's, he's reading, he's, he's interjecting his own philosophy onto the Bible again, again. There you go. Okay, that's a symbol for, for infinity, all right? So we have, we have time, okay? All right? And... Uh, Ah, yes, very biblical, very biblical scholarly, because you're definitely talking about the Bible when you're talking about this crazy theory of time you got. So, uh, we have these verses where God changes his mind. For example, Exodus 32, 14. Let me go right there. I'm going to read something to you. I'm going to show you something. A lot of Christians aren't, aren't aware of these verses. What verse is that? Exodus 32, 14. Last one there is an open theist. All right. Uh-oh. I may be, I don't put the used here. Uh-oh. That's right. Hey, what's going on here? How come I, it won't work. That's weird. Okay. All right. Uh, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he had said he would do to his people. That's what it says right there. The Lord changed his mind. There's other verses that talk about this. Numbers 14, 11. All right. There's a lot of verses. And so what you need to do is you need to understand verses in context. Look to the context and look to see what the verse, how the verse is acting in context. If the narrative of what's being described, if it falls apart absent of that verse, if that verse is giving motivating factors for God, motivating plot points that, that further the plot and transition from one state of affairs to another state of affairs, that if it's integral to the plot, then that's describing an actual repentance. Either that, or you're going to have to claim that the entire event was a fable in some in some way. It's it's describing fictional things that never happened. But he doesn't do that. He never does this contextual analysis of any of the verses he quotes. He doesn't do it. Numbers fourteen eleven says, "The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me?'" And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I performed in their midst? He doesn't even know it's, how long are they going to do this. That doesn't mean that he doesn't know. You know, how long are you going to be putting, you know, how long, you know, like that, just stop talking. So God changes his mind, right? And there's a bunch of verses like this. God has regrets. Yep. God seems to be surprised. God didn't know what people would do. God tests people to learn what they will do. God shows uncertainty about the future. These are some of the things that they claim. There's all these verses, but uh, we just got to ignore all these verses. Now, 
God changes his mind. Let's just work And they're this. heretics for right. believing those verses. So, this is time, all right? So let's, we have here is eternal decrees. In other words, this is what God says will happen. It's going to happen. Eternal decrees. Certain things he has decreed from the foundation of the world. For example, the crucifixion of Christ. All right? You go to Acts 4, 27, 28. Now, I'm going to expand this out a little bit. Okay? You can still see me on the thing. So, here we have people. All right? And they're uh, milling around. And these people are good people, bad people. Going to go off. And uh, some things happen. Now, God wants this event to happen here. He wants event A to happen. And what he does is he speaks and he prophesies. Well, he can do that. I'll just do it this way. So he says here, he, uh, he speaks, okay? He speaks and he says something. And then here, people react to what he says, and then they do something. So they do something, and God will say... Here's what, here's what he's getting at. He's gonna, this is his actual theory of how God operates. God lies through his teeth to people. God says, I'm going to do this, and then they respond to what God says that he's going to do. They, because, of course, they're not Calvinists. They don't believe that God's immutable. They believe God can change. And so they react to what he says, uh, but then God doesn't do what he says he's going to do. And that's okay to lie through your teeth to people and tell them you're going to do all sorts of things that you were never planning on doing. You never contemplated actually being a part of the future. It's, it's just lies, 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 lies. So if you lie to someone just to get them to do something, that's okay in the mind of Matt Slick. You just, just lie to people. You want to, your kids to do something, you lie to them. You say, oh, if you don't clean your room, then Santa Claus won't come. Or if you don't clean your room, then something bad is going to happen. <laughs> you know, and, you, and something that you never intended to make happen. And I'm going to burn down your entire room if you don't clean it. You know, you just lie through your teeth to your kids, and that's fine. As long as it gets them to do what you want. That, that's, that's what he, this is what he's suggesting. Hey, I didn't know that was going to happen. Right? Now, eternal decrees, which we know exist because the Bible tells us that he works all things after the counsel of his will. He's agreed in various things to get into that. He speaks. That means exactly what I want, and there's no other variant readings whatsoever, and I've not even addressed any variant readings or how other people can take that in different contexts. You know, just Calvinism. I see a phrase and it means Calvinism. Nothing else. It can't possibly mean anything else. That's how language works. My reading's the only reading. And then people do things, and then in the open theist perspective, God didn't know this, so now there's a new, God's knowledge goes on, okay? So God has this, now he has knowledge where before he didn't. Yeah, let's go back to Eli's house. God says, I'm going to give you an eternal priesthood. Then Eli's sons become so wicked that God says, I'm taking away this eternal priesthood. I know I said that you'll have eternal priesthood 
but now I say, whoever honors me, I will honor him. So he takes an unconditional and he converts it into a conditional, right? And remember, that can't happen in Calvinism because if something doesn't happen, if something doesn't occur, that means it's conditional all along. Except for, except for in the case with Eli's house, where it wasn't conditional before, and it's converted to a conditional based on things that actually happen. That's how the Bible works. That's how the Bible's written. And Matt Slick says, oh, we don't care about that. Uh, anything that we don't like in the Bible, we'll just ignore those parts. We'll make up words and concepts that are foreign to normal speaking conventions, foreign to normal literature, literature, literature conventions, and then we'll just impose Platonism on everything. Platonism, Platonism, Platonism. We'll just wash our faces in Platonism. Everything in the Bible is Platonism. Well, and anything that's not, that's not, that's not what it really means. You got to read it in light of Platonism, you know, like uh, Augustine, where his his mentor said, yeah, I know you think the Bible's absurd, and it is absurd. You just have to read it in light of Platonism. And Matt Slick's like, ah, read the Bible in light of Platonism and throw away all those things that I like to mock. I know I like to mock Yahweh. But uh, those parts of the Bible aren't true anyway, so I'll mock Yahweh, and uh, then I'll just impose Platonism on everything. Matt Slick, Platonist extraordinaire, hater of Yahweh. So he spoke, God learned, because he was surprised by something. He had to change his mind about something. Now, here's the thing. People... <laughs> He's a nut. We know, First John three twenty. God knows all things. He doesn't learn. There we go. There's there's the pill to First John three twenty again, where the previous chapter literally has the exact same phrase about human beings that people who follow God know all things, but he doesn't read the Bible consistently. He reads the Bible for Platonism. Any little bits and pieces that he could pull out of the Bible to reinforce his Platonism. He'll take those parts and ignore everything else. He's a Platonist first. A Platonist first and with the facade of a Christian. He is fake Christian. Fake Christian. Open theist will say he learns. So, in open theism, God learns. Yeah, and there's a ton of Bible verses that talk about God learning things. There's just a ton of them. Uh, I got that... Uh, you want 71 verses that just slap, 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 God learning things. There's a lot of them. God learns. But we know, biblically speaking, he does not learn. So why would God be surprised? We know that because of our idiosyncratic reading of these little phrases that must definitely mean our Platonism. Our Platonism takes priority over reading comprehension. That's what he's saying. Or change his mind if he knows all of this. Why would he say he's surprised? Why would he do that? Well, the open theist would say, well, the plain reading of Scripture requires that we understand that what God is doing is actually telling us that he's surprised. He really is surprised. Are you not believing that, Matt? Yeah. I'll say, yeah. well, um, there are verses that we haven't memorized where God decrees every event. Whatever. <laughs> No, there's not. No, there's not. Find one. Find one verse. Again, it's this thing where you look for little phrases and then you impose flatly absurd interpretations. You throw away the context and then you import pretext. You throw away context and you import Platonism. Whatever he desires shall come to pass. 
How could he be surprised if he decrees everything, if certain things are to occur? It wouldn't would make sense. Now, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned and they're hiding themselves. This is the part that I referenced earlier in this podcast. It's kind of funny. The pre-incarnate Jesus came up and he said to the man, where are you? The pre-incarnate Jesus. Okay, there's nothing any, anywhere in the Bible that suggests it, but okay, we'll, we'll go with it. We'll roll with that. Now, do you think that the pre-incarnate Christ is in the garden like this? Where'd you go? Where, where are you? Oh, are you out there anywhere? You think that's what was happening? Or do you think he knew exactly where he was? That he knew where he was, okay? In the open theism. Because of my assumptions I'm imposing on the text. There's nothing in context that suggests that, but that's what I want to believe. And so I'm just going to just say it with confidence, and then it must be true. You know, I cover actually uh, Genesis 3 in my book, God is Open, and I talk about different variant readings of what, what could possibly be true, what's, what's happening here. You can't impose your assumptions on the text. Matt Slick likes to impose on the Bible. Whatever he wants to be true, whatever his emotions tell him needs to be true. Remember, his, his form of argumentation is whatever I don't like, whatever makes me feel bad, I'm just going to mock it. And if I mock it, that means it can't be true. That's, that's his rationale. That's his, his thinking, his emotional pleading, his, uh, his appeals to emotion, his appeals to the moralistic fallacy. Oh, my emotions say this can't be the reading. And so this other reading that doesn't, isn't suggested by the context, that's, that's the one that's true. He's doing it with Genesis 3. Genesis 3. He says, this is what I want to believe about the text. So that's what's true about the text. Look to context. Try to make a contextual argument. You can't do that because you're not a biblical scholar. You're a Platonist first with a Christian veneer. His perspective, the plain reading of Scripture would mean God doesn't know where Adam was. God's appeared. No, uh, very few. Like, like there's like two open theists in the world that would ever make that argument. What instead, what the open theists talk about are something known called a known answer question, where you're querying your subject. Something you already know, but you ask them the question to see if they'll be honest about that. Let's say my kids are, they did something naughty, and I ask them, what did you do yesterday? I might know that they did that thing. I might know that they did the naughty thing, but I'm asking them to see if they're going to fess up to it. Guess what? No one answer questions. There's a purpose. And the purpose, drum roll, do, 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 is to acquire information to see if they're going to respond how you want them to respond. Don't answer questions have the purpose of acquiring new information. But he doesn't talk about this. He doesn't talk about known answer questions. That would undermine his, his crazy take on Genesis 3. You know, behind a bush, you know. Hey, one of these going to see me. Stay right here. It doesn't make any sense. Why would God speak like that? Because we call it... Anthro. We call it this word we made up that is not present in any literature at all except for the Bible. And we invented the word so we could dismiss things that we don't want to take literally in the Bible. Oh, oh it's a big word. No, it's called a known answer question. It's a common interrogation technique. Come on, Matt Slick, think a little bit. Just 
Just try to extend yourself. Just use some rationality. Use some common sense. I, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. My arm's getting tired. This is so difficult. So difficult. It's huh? a morphism. <laughs> Okay, it's, it's, I'm sesquipedalian. That means I like big words. So an anthropomorphism. So did the events actually happen? Did God walk through the garden and have a conversation with Adam? Yes or no? Yes or no? And if it, everything's an anthropomorphism, if nothing's happening as being described, if it talks about God's eternal and internal state and God's emotions, and that's not actually what happened, that's called a fable. Fable is the word you're looking for. You think that the entire Bible is written in fables. You don't believe the Bible, you want to throw the Bible out. The Bible says something, I don't like it, I throw the Bible out. Rather than using common reading comprehension techniques, common interrogation techniques, just let normal people understand how to extract information from subjects through these known answer questions and the purpose and use of them. But, you know, you don't, you don't even consider that as a possibility because you're desperate. You're desperate to have a proof text against open theism, and you're desperate to use this straw man that, like, zero open theists, zero open theists actually use the Genesis 3 text to say that God didn't have knowledge. Zero. I could, like, well, maybe, maybe like, what? I've met, like, one. And besides myself... A read the God is Open book where I talk about possibilities. I talk about context and what, what the context suggests. But it's a contextually based argument. He doesn't even do that. His, his argument is, I don't like this alternative. It makes me feel sad inside. My name is Matt Slick. I'm an emotional, unstable man. And so this is, the, this is the way to read this. Is where God relates to us in a level and in a means that we understand. So he does that. We understand. Now, but you're a heretic if you believe him. If you believe God, if you believe God, you are a heretic. So you got to reject what God says. He always says something about himself. You throw it, throw it away. You're always talking about himself. Throw it in the trash. We got our own theology. If you believe Yahweh, you're a heretic. And you got to import Platonism onto the text. What color is divinity? How about this? What is humanity, the human essence? What does it look like? How much does the human essence weigh? These are non sequiturs. We, you know, He's off the deep end. He's not making a coherent point here. It's like saying blue sleeps faster than Wednesday. It doesn't make any sense. But in the human perspective, we can recognize life and... I made all these sentences that didn't make sense, and so we got to reject the Bible. Bible says something, reject it, because if you don't believe me, look at all these sentences that I just formed that don't make any sense. <laughs> That's his argument. Personhood and the humanity and the essence of a person by the attributes that are displayed by a person. So I Again, he's talking like this because he doesn't believe that Yahweh is anything like Yahweh described in the Bible. God instead is this pure simplicity pure actuality, partless, without any predicates, without any any descriptions. All of God's attributes are identical to all God's other attributes in such a way that God is a, a simple singularity without parts or relationships. That's what he thinks God is. That's, that's literally what he thinks God is. He's a Platonist. That's, that's not Yahweh of the Bible. Absolutely not. He's worshiping a false god. I don't think he's a Christian. But that's who he sees as God. And so he's got to find some sort of way to reject all these biblical texts. The entire Bible is about God's relationality, God, 
God has his, his struggles with Israel as Israel doesn't perform the way that God wants and God's continual cycle of punishment and, and salvation. He punishes, he saves, they become even more wicked than they had before. His salvations do not work out the way he had planned. He wanted to correct them and lead them into the right way and, and they failed him. This, this is the story of the Bible. This is the plot of the Bible is God's reoccurring attempts to create a special people unto himself, which is continually thwarted by rebellious man. The pain, the grief, the ang anguish, the anger that comes along with it. All of this is recorded in the Bible. This is the biblical story. All of that has to be denied by Calvinism in which God is impassable, pure simplicity, this, uh, this, this being of pure actuality. No parts, no potency, no contingency, no relationships, no predicates, nothing. This, this, this pure singularity. So you got the stark contrast between the God of the Bible and the God of Platonism. Matt Slick worships the God of Platonism. I recognize personhood when I, I talk to someone, I say, you are a jerk. Okay, and recognizing them, I'm saying you. And they say, oh yeah, you're a bigger jerk than me. So they're recognizing me. They have the idea of recognition, understanding. And we can say, I hey, forget it's good to get a cup of coffee. Okay, great. So we make a deal and we go get a cup of coffee together. So now we're doing something together. We have a relationship. I'm experiencing, as that other person is experiencing, personhood. I don't see personhood. I see the manifestation of personhood. You get my saying here? So we have something. I'm going to erase their stuff. You have something. You have the nature of something. And then you have the attributes. Okay? So this is the essence. And when something exists, has an essence, has attributes. So this uh, eraser uh, it exists and it has attributes. It's this long, it's this, um, weighs this much, you know, doesn't taste good. Matt Slick, do you think that God has predicates? That's a yes or no question. And he's he would say, he would say, no, God does not have predicates. God is pure actuality, pure simplicity. And so I think this is disingenuous what he's talking about, that God, quote unquote, has attributes. He doesn't think they're real attributes. He doesn't think God actually has predicates. God is incomprehensible in pure simplicity. And we can't say anything about God because uh, human language can't contemplate this pure actuality. Remember the Platonist position that they try to inward meditate to reach an enlightened phase in order to see the more pure truths, to try to approach the infinite. That's what uh, Platonism is. That's what Gnosticism is. That's what Calvinism is. This is what Augustine, he taught peasants. He was teaching farmers, rural farmers, introspective contemplation to attain enlightenment. This is Gnosticism. This is not Christianity. Good, things like that. But the attributes emanate out of the essence. They reflect the essence. So if you have personhood, I will be able to detect personhood by the attributes. The same with God. His existence means he has attributes. The problem with God is, in us, in this relationship of discovering him, is if he were to show his blue orbness of undulating fifth-dimensional Tesseract stuff. That's who God is to him. That's who God is. It's this being of Platonism. It's not Yahweh. 
It's not the biblical God. The Bible doesn't speak like this. It doesn't. It talks about Yahweh, an intensely personal, relational God who comes down, takes the form of man, dies for mankind, has relationship with man. And it. what, what are we going to believe? Matt Slick, his blue undulating force, his pure actuality, pure simplicity, or the Bible. Those are your options. If you want to reject the Bible, Matt Slick, go ahead and reject the Bible. But don't, do not, just assume that the Bible endorses your crazy Platonism that's nowhere found anywhere in the Bible. Anywhere. We wouldn't know that was God. We'd go, who the heck is that? You know, and we just go running. So what God has to do in order to communicate to us so that we understand him is he has to anthropomorphize. He has to become one of us in our level, communicate on a way we can understand. This is the basics called the incarnation. Well, in this, we know that God, for all eternity, is going to relate to us in a way that we're going to understand. But if you believe it, you're a heretic. You, God says something and you believe it, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're a heretic. God says he changes his mind. You, you got to understand, you got to be smarter than God. God says something and we don't like it. It doesn't meet our Platonism. Got to throw Yahweh's statements about himself in the trash and then uh, uh, endorse Platonism or else you're a heretic. You're a heretic if you believe Yahweh. No, I didn't know you were going to do that. That's right. On a human level, this is what's going on. Hey, Adam, where are you? Of course he knew where he was. We and Will Duffy, don't, don't get baited into this crazy philosophy discussion. If, if you're realistic, don't do it. Stick with the Bible. None of this is biblical. None of this is described in the Bible. This is all from the pages of Plotinus. This is all from the pages of Plato, from the Neoplatonists, from the Gnostics. This is not from the Bible. So as long as this debate is about the Bible and refocus to the Bible, Will Duffy is going to win this debate because you can't find any of this craziness. You cannot find any of Matt Slick's beliefs in the Bible. He has to import them all onto the Bible. When his proof texts are examined and examined in context, they fall apart. They all fall apart. There's sand in his hand. There's a rope of sand. That, that's what Matt Slick has for his theology because, because what rules his theology is not the Bible. It doesn't, his theology doesn't live or die based on the text of the Bible, reading the Bible in context, trying to comprehend what, what different phrases mean to the authors, different variations, possibilities. His theology lives and dies based on his philosophy that he imports onto the text. It's pretty explicit in the way he argues, his emotional appeals, his this must be true because my emotions tell me that's true. And you hear it over and over in this discussion. This is how this man thinks. And he considers himself intelligent. He considers himself smart, but he's constructed himself a tinfoil bubble made out of plastic wrap and uh, Walmart shopping bags. And that's, that's how he views the world, through his, his crazed bubble that he constructed in his own mind. See this first example of the, the condescension of God in the garden when he came down and he was right there in the garden with Adam. He knew where he was because they heard the sound of the Lord walking and they hid themselves, which means it's getting close. The sound's getting close. They heard and they, they hid. Where are you? Adam, where are you? Now there's a lot to that theological question. Where are you spiritually? Where are you physically? You know, <laughs> what? but we see what? the initial pattern. Now this idea is called the, the law of first mention. Now in, Jane, excuse me, in Genesis 2.17, 
watch his misuse. Okay, so he, he has all his assumptions about what's going on in Genesis 3, and then he's going to import his assumptions about how the law of first mention is, how it relates to Genesis 3. He says to Adam, right. says to Adam Great. the first mention of the word death or die. The, when you eat of the fruit, you will die. And Adam didn't die. It's the same phrase God was using when talking to Abimelech, the exact same phrase. Exact same phrase. And that was a physical death. And no, Adam and Eve did not physically die. And so what people like Matt Slick do, they say, oh, this must come true. So this must mean something else entirely different than what the context suggests. And I got my alternative reading here. And that must be true because of my emotions. I can't have something that didn't come true that God said. Unless, of course, then if it's it's on the face value, it's super obvious and I can't deny it. And then I'll say, oh, it was conditional. <laughs> except for in this case. Except for in this case. Oh, great, Matt Slick. That's the first mention of it. So what is God? We talk about conditional prophecies. And let's, let's real quick talk about Exodus 32 again. Exodus 32. The people didn't repent. The people didn't do anything to warrant a conditional change in God. The only thing that happened was Moses argued that God needs to preserve his own reputation and then God changed his mind about what he's going to do. So what's the condition of that? The condition is the people could remain the same and the people could still be rebellious. But as long as Moses argues that I need to engage in a PR campaign, then, then I'll change my mind. That was the unwritten conditional. That's slick. It's crazy. Your, your views are crazy. It's nonsense. God mean by it. The day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. They ate of the fruit that day. Did they die? No, they did not. Yes. Of course they died, because God said so. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, because my assumptions, oh, my assumptions. Take your hand and put it I, I got to import all my theology onto the text, and, and the text must mean my theology. Because if the text differs from my theology, my emotions take over, and it can't be that. It can't be that. So look at that. He presupposes his theology on the Bible rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. Look your face, look to your left, and slap yourself upside the head. Because the answer is, yeah, they died. Why? Look at me mock. I mock other alternatives that might be more obvious that some people in my audience, it did sound like some of the people say, said that Adam and Eve did not die. It sounds like some of them said that. And he says, oh, that's a mockable position. We'll just mock that position. And then because my mocking is substituted for actual rationale and reasoning, if, if you mock something, that means it's false, right? And so we'll just uh, discount those possibilities. And then it has to be the one that I don't want to mock. That, Whenever Matt Slick, whenever he talks about logic, whenever he talks about argumentation, really substitute those words in what he's saying. He's talking about his own fragile emotions. He's a fragile man with fragile emotions. All right, this podcast has already gone fairly long, and so I'm going to have to cut us off. Maybe we'll come back and do the rest of this. There's another, what, 20 minutes of this. Oh, man, it's hard. Uh, it's hard, but uh, if you bared with me this long, uh, I congratulate you. It's kind of like that James White podcast where he just rambles and rambles on. But at least this was actually a little bit more interesting than James White. James White more talked about random nonsense that was unrelated to anything. At least Matt Slick stays on topic. I commend him for that. I, I commend him for for keeping things moving. He talks about a lot of different arguments in a, 
a pretty short time frame. I wish he would spend a little bit more time talking about the context of his proof text to prove that his proof text means what he wants from the context, but of course he can't do that. Calvinism dies when looking at the context. Context uh, invalidates Calvinist interpretations of text. So he doesn't do that. What he wants to do is give these short allusions to these proof texts and just pretend those proof texts means what he wants them to mean. So if, if Will Duffy, if he sticks to the Bible, if he sticks to context, if he shows in context that at least one or two of Matt Slick's allusions, because Matt Slick will shoot out like 20 different verse allusions, if you just focus on one and say, okay, let's take the first one, probably his most important text since he threw it out first, and look at these reasons why it doesn't mean what he says. So because we understand that's how he does theology, that he, he quotes things out of context and has these wild assumptions that he brings onto the text, we can understand that all those other texts that he alludes to doesn't mean what he says, because this is how he does theology. It's this haphazard way that's it's not contextual. It's not biblical theology. What it is, it's Platonism looking for a Christian veneer. That's what Matt Slick is. He's a Platonist with this uh, face value that he presents as Christianity. He's not a Christian. He hates, he mocks Yahweh. He hates Yahweh. If Yahweh was God, he would totally disdain Yahweh. He hates Yahweh. He does. All right. So if you have any questions or comments on this podcast, send that to God is open questions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.